So we're going to be continuing in the Gospel of Mark. Um, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. There was a, a movie that came out many years ago starring uh, Tom Cruise. Um, it was a movie called Collateral. And in this movie, Tom Cruise plays a hitman. And he, is, he comes into a city, he has several targets he has to eliminate um, within like 24 hours. And one of the targets happens to be a jazz musician. And so he shows up at this uh, jazz club, and he listens to the guy play, and then they sit down at a table together, and they have this long conversation, because Tom Cruise's character loves jazz music. Um, and so they have this long conversation about jazz, and it's, a, it's just a wonderful conversation. And then suddenly it's revealed who Tom is and what he's come there to do, that he has come there to kill this man. But because of the great conversation, because of the shared love of jazz, Tom Cruise's character offers this man a, an opportunity. He says, I'm going to ask you one question. And it's a question about jazz music. If you get that question correct, then I will let you live. If you get it wrong, I'm going to kill you. You're going to die. Imagine if you were put in that position. Imagine if you were sitting there and someone said, I'm going to ask you a question, and your answer is going to either give you life or it's going to bring you death. Literally, your life will hang in the balance. Well, that is what we have before us today. Jesus asked his disciples a question. And he asked this question of each one of us as well. It is an inescapable question. It's a question that cannot be avoided. And your answer will bring life or it will bring death. So let us stand in honor of God's word as we read this passage together. This is Mark 8. I'll start at verses 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We know that your word is truth. We know that your word has been given to us in love in order for us to be able to see and to know Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this time even now to open our hearts, to open our minds, to open our eyes, that we might see Jesus and that he would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So verse 27 sets the scene for this passage. Jesus and his disciples, they were coming from Bethsaida, and this is where he had just healed a blind man. Essen preached about this last week. And now they were heading their, on their way to Caesarea Philippi, which was about a day's journey north. And as they were walking, Jesus began to ask his disciples questions. He did this often. He liked to ask questions. Now this was not uh, your every average day, average day questions. Jesus was not just trying to shoot the breeze. He was not just trying to pass the time as they had a long journey ahead of them. 
he was about to ask them the most important question of all time. And their answer to that question would bring life or death. And he asked each one of us that question as well. Now, the first question that he asked his disciples is found in verse 27. He says, on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? So why does Jesus ask this question? Is he concerned about public opinion? Does he really just want to try to discern, like, how well am I doing? How well is my ministry going? How effective am I being? No. His first question is, is this setting the stage for another much more important question? But before we move on to that question, let's see how the disciples answered this first question, and their answer is found in verse 28. They told him that some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say that you're just one of the prophets. So the, the disciples provide Jesus with kind of, these are the most popular current theories about your identity. You see, the question in the minds of many people in Israel at that time is, is who is this Jesus? Who is this man that are do is doing all these amazing things? Now, there are some out there that see Jesus as a threat. There are some that see him as this mystery. And there are others that actually see him as a gift from God. So there's not common consensus about Jesus in that time. However, these three options are the most common responses. These are the most common opinions. So people either believe that he's John the Baptist, that he's Elijah, or that he's one of the prophets. So they give Jesus a favorable report. And this leads us to a question. Why do the people hold to one of those three opinions? Why do they believe that he's John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to know a little bit about our history. So let's look at the first option first. So, so some people believe that Jesus is John the Baptist returned from the dead. John the Baptist was beheaded by King Herod, um, but there was a, a growing movement after his beheading that John had returned, that he'd returned, and that's who Jesus was. Um, and it was because of the things that Jesus was saying and some of the things that he was doing that people believed that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And we find this uh, primarily in, in earlier in Mark in chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, which read this. King Herod heard of it again. He heard of the things that Jesus and his disciples were doing, uh, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, no, it's John whom I beheaded has been raised. So King Herod was absolutely convinced that Jesus was John the Baptist returned, that he had been raised from the dead. And because he believed it so adamantly, others started to believe this as well. So there were many people that believed that Jesus was John the Baptist returned from the dead. Now, others believe that he was Elijah. And there, there are two passages that help explain why people believe this. The first is found in 2 Kings chapter 2, which says this. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, and what I, <clears throat> ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elijah said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they, were, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah is one of two people in the Old Testament that never died. That they were taken from this earth, and they were taken straight to heaven. And so people believed because he didn't die, and because he was simply taken to heaven, that he could one day return. Um, and, and Malachi 4-5 to 5 seems to, to 
alludes to this as well. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so, therefore, there are many people that believe that Jesus was Elijah, that God had sent Elijah back to, to prepare the people for this coming day of the Lord. And that is why it's, many people believe that he was Elijah. Now, some believe he was John the Baptist. Some believe he was Elijah. Others believe that he was one of the prophets. Uh, and particularly, he was the promised prophet. We find this coming from Deuteronomy 18, which says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. And it goes on and says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So many believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise, that God had promised to one day send this special prophet. So those are the three most common theories during Jesus' day, during his ministry, that he was either John the Baptist returned from the dead, that he was Elijah sent from heaven to prepare the people for the day of the Lord, or that he was this promised special prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Now those are all good options. They all point to the fact that God, or that Jesus was sent from God, that he was given special authority and power to act for God. And they're good things. And there are similar opinions about Jesus even today. Right? Some people believe that Jesus is just a, a great teacher, similar to maybe one of the prophets of old, that he teaches us many good things about life and about love, and, and he's worthy of our time and our energy to listen to him and to take to heart the things that he taught. Now others view Jesus kind of as like a, a freedom fighter, similar to what Elijah did. You see, Elijah stood up against the authorities of his day, and he defended the rights of the disenfranchised and the despised and people see Jesus doing the same thing, that Jesus was just simply like a social justice warrior, that he stood up against the man, and he fought for the rights of the lowly and the rejected. Now others today you know, are inspired by Jesus' minimalistic view of life, approach to life, that he was this aesthetic, that he denied himself many things and, and lived simply and focused on his purpose, which was to, to proclaim the good news and to act on God's behalf. And so therefore, he lived a life that's as worthy of us following. So many believe that about Jesus. Now, these are all good things as well. If any of those options were true, that would be amazing. If John the Baptist had returned, if Elijah had come, if, if this great promised prophet was finally here, those would all be good things. But there's a problem. That is not who Jesus is. He is not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He is not one of the prophets from old. He's not simply a good teacher. He's not a freedom fighter. He's not just simply an aesthetic whose life was worthy to follow. And you know what? That's good news. None of those identities go far enough. None of those identities for Jesus would provide us with any hope. Public opinion about Jesus is wrong. He is much, much, much more than what people think about him. But he wants to know what his disciples understand. He's not interested at this time in, in public opinion. He wants to know what his disciples think. So he asked them a second question, and we see this in verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Now that's an in-your-face question. Matter of fact, the, the English translations actually don't do a good, good enough job interpreting this. They don't point out how strong and how emphatic Jesus is here. 
A better translation is this. Jesus is saying, you, but who do you say that I am? It is as if Jesus is turning to disciples and he's pointing at them in their face and saying, I don't care what everyone thinks. I want to know what do you think. Who do you say that I am? What do you believe about me in your heart of hearts? He's asking them a very personal, heart-searching question. It is a question of the utmost importance because the answer to that question does determine their future. It will bring life or death. The other thing that this question does is that it forces the disciples to separate themselves from public opinion, from what others believe about Jesus. You see, it's easy to tell others to tell people what others think about Jesus. It's much more difficult and personal to talk about what you believe about Jesus. Because not everyone is going to agree with your answer. Matter of fact, there may be some out there that will be antagonistic or even hostile to you if you don't agree with them about Jesus. You can no longer live and hide in the shadow of public opinion. Because this question, it's unavoidable. No one else can answer this question for you. And Jesus is asking you right now, who do you say that I am? Jesus is not asking, what does your church believe about me? He's not asking, what do your parents believe about me? He's not asking, what did you learn in those various catechisms and things that the church taught you about me? No. He wants to know what your answer is. He's asking you right now, who do you say that I am? Well, we find the disciples' answer in verse 29. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So Peter, he's acting as a representative of all the disciples, gives the answer, Jesus, you are the Christ. The Gospel of Matthew adds to that, that Peter also says that you are the son of the living God. And so that's the answer. Jesus' true identity is he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now this truth has already been made known to us in the Gospel of Mark. Matter of fact, Mark opens his Gospel by telling us who Jesus is. The very beginning. And then this is revealed again when, when Jesus is baptized. We find this in, in verse 9 of chapter 1, which says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Even the demons at various times in the Gospel of Mark reveal Jesus' true identity. An example of that is, is found in Mark 1, verses 23 through 24, which says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. So the true identity of Jesus has not been hidden from us as readers of the Gospel of Mark. But it's important to note that, that here in, in actually the timeline of Jesus, this is the first time that his identity is revealed by human lips. So the question that comes from that is, how does, Jesus, how does Peter know this? How does Peter know the true identity of Jesus? Yeah, certainly they have been around Jesus for several years now, and they've seen him do amazing things. They've heard him teach with authority. They've seen him cast out demons and perform all kinds of miracles. They have been asked questions by Jesus, and they've had opportunities to ask Jesus all kinds of questions. And they've even wondered out loud, who is this person? Who is this man that has such authority and can do such amazing things? So have they finally figured it out? Have they figured it out because they've had enough evidence? Well, once again, the Gospel of Matthew gives us the answer. Matthew 16, 17, in the parallel account of this, says this. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, who is Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the reason that Peter and his disciples finally understand the truth about Jesus is because of God. The Holy Spirit has softened their hearts and he has opened their spiritual eyes. Jesus is the author of faith and he has given faith to his disciples. He's given them the ability to see him for who he really is. So the disciples, you know, they just came from witnessing another miracle and that miracle is related to what is happening here. I said Essen preached about this last week, but just the verses right before this passage, if you remember, this is where there was a blind man and Jesus heals that blind man, but he does it in, in, in two stages. You know, the first stage is he, he spits and he rubs the man's eyes, and, and he gets some sight restored. But when he looks at people, they still look like trees walking to him. So Jesus re, um, heals him a second time, and then he's fully healed, and his sight is fully restored. So Jesus gave this man sight. Well, he's also done this for his disciples spiritually. You see, all those people who believe that Jesus is John the Baptist, or that he's Elijah, or that he's one of the prophets they do have some understanding about Jesus. They have some insights about him. They know that he's a godly man. They know that he comes from God, that he's doing God's work. They know that he has amazing authority, that he has amazing gifts and power. But they still don't see Jesus clearly. Spiritually speaking, Jesus looks to them like trees walking. They don't know the true Jesus. And this is true for many people today in our world, in our culture. And it was once true for all of you as well. It's also true for the disciples. But Jesus opens their eyes through his spirit, and now they see him clearly. They see his true identity, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter may still not have known fully what he was confessing, but he did know that he was stepping across the line that would determine the rest of his life. He was not simply making some theological statement. He was making a declaration of allegiance. Jesus is the Christ, which means that he is Lord and that he is King. See, you cannot claim this title of Jesus without also accepting the authority that comes with it. The authority that he has to rule over you as the true King. So the disciples, they were declaring their allegiance and submissions to Jesus and this becomes clear um, when we understand what Christ actually means. This is a title given to Jesus, the Christ. What does that mean? Well, it's the Greek word for Messiah, which means the anointed one. The Messiah was the chosen and anointed by God to carry out his purposes for his people. He was going to be sent into the world to establish an everlasting kingdom. He was going to deliver Israel from all of their enemies. He was going to provide them with peace. And he was going to rule over them with perfect justice. And in, and in glory. So the Christ was this, this long-awaited deliverer and king. The people were looking forward to this day. But it's also interesting to notice uh, the context in which this truth is revealed. Because Jesus you know, and his disciples, they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And this city was known for two things. First, uh, the city uh, was named in honor of, of Caesar Augustus. There was... Uh, which, who ruled over Rome for over 50 years. There was a magnificent temple in the city built in, in his honor. And it was um, where Caesar was revered and worshipped as a god. And so the temple itself was really just this monument to the glory and the authority and the power of Rome. 
The other thing the city was known for is there was also in there a, um, a sanctuary to the god Pan. Pan was the god of nature. Um, and it was believed that he was born in a cave just outside of the city, and so they had built a, uh, a sanctuary to him in his honor. Um, and, and so therefore he was, he was worshipped and revered in that city as well. So this city was a city of competing gods and beliefs. Many worshipped Caesar, many worshipped Pan. And it was within this context that it is first proclaimed by the mouth of a human being that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, that he is the true king. So despite how things may appear, the true king is here. The one that has true authority, who has the right to rule, has come. So those of you that worship Pan, he is going down. Rome will be defeated So it is a time to rejoice and to celebrate. So let's spread the word that the true king is here. That is the response we would expect, right? Jesus is the Christ, and he is here. This is the person that we've been longing for. This is the person that we've been waiting for. We can't even imagine the anticipation they had for this day, that the Christ, the promised one, has finally arrived. So what happens next? Well, look at verse 30. He strictly tells them to tell nobody about him. What? That's not what we expect. We expect them to to shout from the rooftops, the king is here, the Christ has come. But instead, Jesus tells them to remain silent. Don't tell anyone about me. He doesn't tell them that you're wrong, I'm not the Christ. He accepts that title because that's who he is. But still, don't tell anyone about me. You know, the disciples have been given sight. They know who Jesus is now. So why doesn't he want him to share this news with others? Have you ever wondered about that? Because Jesus does this a lot, doesn't he? If you read through the Gospel of Mark, there are many times when he does some amazing miracle or he heals somebody of some disease or he casts out some demon. People, of course, are excited about him and they want to go tell others, but Jesus then tells them, don't tell anybody. Remain silent. So why does he do this? Well, the simple answer is that it's not yet time for his true identity to be revealed. The reason for this is that Jesus still has work to do, and it's work that even his disciples still don't fully understand. And revealing his true identity at this point in his public ministry would actually be an obstacle to him accomplishing that work. It would thwart God's plans. Why? Because no one understands Jesus' true purpose yet. You see, the Jews, they had certain expectations for the Messiah. An example of this is found in, in a particular work from the Pseudepigrapha called the Psalms of Paul, uh, Solomon. And in there, this is what it says about the Messiah. This is what they were expecting about the Christ when he came. It says, See, Lord, and raise up for them the king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence, and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. That is what the Jews were waiting for. That is what they were expecting when the Christ was to be revealed, is that it would be someone that would crush their enemies. It would be someone that would send their enemies fleeing, It'd be someone who would come and establish a a kingdom that would last forever and that could never be defeated. A kingdom that would be full of justice and peace and love. 
that Christ would come to fulfill all the promises that God had made to his people. All of these things they're expecting are true. There's nothing wrong with believing that and hoping for that. Because that is what Jesus came to do. And we should all long for that day. We should all anticipate that day. And you know what? Jesus, he could have done that right here and now. He could have said, yes, you finally know who I am. I'm the Christ. And at that moment, defeated all of his enemies, established his kingdom, and started to rule and reign in full power and in full glory at that very moment. And that would have been awesome, wouldn't it? That would have been a great thing to see Jesus ruling in his full glory. It wouldn't be, actually. That would not be a good thing because if Jesus had done that, if Jesus had come and taken his rightful place and established his kingdom at that very moment, not one of us would be in it. Because none of us, not one of us are qualified to be in his kingdom. And there's no way any one of us could earn our way into his kingdom. So Jesus still had work to do. We get a glimpse of this in in verse 27. So Mark says that it was on the way that Jesus asked his disciples a question. And that phrase, on the way, is actually a very important phrase. Mark uses it intentionally. And and you're going to see this phrase show up more and more often now as we get to the second half of the Gospel of Mark. You see, this passage is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. From this point forward, Jesus turns his attention directly to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the cross. This phrase reveals his true purpose, that Jesus must suffer and that he must die. Stop and think about that for a second. It's just been revealed that Jesus indeed is the Christ. He's the promised king. He will establish his kingdom. He will rule and reign forever. But he's going to suffer and die first. Peter makes this great confession. The true identity has been revealed. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet, he is on his way to be humiliated, to be rejected, to be beaten, to suffer, and ultimately to die. In in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' power is is prominently on display in the first half of the Gospel. But from this point forward, you're going to see focus now be more and more upon his weakness and upon his humiliation, because the cross is now becoming the focus. So why does he do this? Why does Jesus set his sights on the cross? Why is he on his way to death? It's because he wants you, and he wants me to be in his kingdom. You see, Rome, the glory of Rome, the power of Rome, the the power of this God Pan, and the rest of the world, they're all enemies to God's people. But there's a much greater enemy, and that is our sin. Sin separates us from God. All of us have sinned, and there's nothing any one of us can do to change that. So Jesus came not only to defeat our earthly enemies, but he came to defeat sin. To do this, he had to take our sin on himself. He had to take our place before the judgment of God. He had to go to the cross. And he did this willingly for you and for me. So yes, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He has established His kingdom. He has already defeated His enemies and He will defeat them fully and finally when He returns. And He has come to rescue His people from their sins. 
so that we can actually spend the rest of eternity in his kingdom with him. Now the key phrase there is that it was for his people. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not for everyone. It is only for his people. Jesus did not come to pay for the sins of all people. He came to pay for the sins of his people. And who are his people? Well, that leads us back to the question that he asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And he is asking you this question this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Because there are many opinions about him. Some say he's a great teacher. Some say that he's a great moral example. Some say that he's just one of of a number of gods. Some say that he never even existed. There are many other answers that people give this question in our society. But none of those answers matter now. What matters is what do you think? Who do you say Jesus is? It is an unavoidable question. Everyone has to answer that question for themselves. You see, Jesus is either the Christ or he's not. So do you believe, as Peter and the disciples believed many years ago, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? That he, is, he, he alone is the one that can deliver you from the sins. That he alone is the one that can give you hope. That he has ultimate authority and power and honor. This is a life or death question. Because only those that believe that Jesus is the Christ will have eternal life. If you do not believe that, then you will spend eternity in hell. If that is you this morning, then I ask you to to call on him. To ask God to show you mercy, to reveal himself to you. Ask for faith that you would come to know Jesus for who he really is. That you would see him as the Christ, as the promised one, as the son of the living God. And if you are here this morning and you know that, if you, if you know who Jesus is, then praise God. You did not come to that knowledge because of your own wisdom. You came to know that because God revealed that to you. Because he opened your eyes, he opened your heart. And therefore you are greatly blessed. Listen to these words by R.C. Sproul. He said, If you believe in your heart that he is the Christ, you are blessed above all people because God has allowed you to see this truth. If you are ever downcast, if you are ever jealous of someone else's status or possessions, if you ever cry to God, why me in the midst of affliction, hear these words, blessed are you. You've been enabled to recognize the pearl of great price. And if God never gives you another blessing for the rest of your days on this earth, you will have no reason to do anything else but proclaim his glory and his mercy to the whole world. Because the greatest blessing a human being can ever have is the blessing of knowing Jesus truly and fully. I hope that is true for all of you today. Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? I hope all of you can answer that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, we do ask now that you would have mercy on all of us, that as we face this question that Jesus asked his disciples many years ago, that each one of us, would know the answer, that we would know who you really are. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to know Jesus fully and truly, to know how blessed we are because we know him. Lord, I pray particularly here this morning, if there's anyone here that does not know him, Lord, I pray that today would be the day, that today would be the day that you would open their eyes and their hearts and that they would call upon Jesus in faith and that they would come to know him. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you continue to work in and through Tabernacle. We ask that you'd continue to bless and guide us.
Lord, we thank you uh, for the various...